Our passage today is verses 3 through 11, which I will read for us now. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you all in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, I do pray that out of your word, Lord, you would bring us illumination to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord, you have called us to obedience and to holiness, Lord, but we know that the greatest gift you have ever given us, the greatest call you've ever called us to, is simply to come to the cross, give up our sin, and receive salvation from Christ. So I pray that that is what comes through most strongly and clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we set the scene for this letter of Paul to the Philippians, and today we'll dive into the first section of his letter after his greeting ending in verse 2. As Paul does in most of his epistles, he begins the body of this letter with a section of thanksgiving for the church he's writing to. If you were to examine all the epistles of Paul included in the New Testament, this particular section of thanksgiving is the longest such section to appear at the beginning of any of them. Well, what might that suggest to us? Stop for a minute and imagine yourself in a similar situation. Imagine that you have been removed from all your friends, and like Paul, perhaps, you're actually imprisoned. So you have all kinds of time on your hands because you can't be out working, you can't be out ministering. You are, after all, in this scenario, a missionary minister of the gospel. You can't be out ministering except to people in direct contact with you in, prison, in your prison circumstances. You can't leave the city because you can't even leave your house. Now, it's unclear whether Paul was in actual prison or whether he was in house arrest. The chains he mentions in the letter may be literal chains or they may be metaphorical, indicating his status as a prisoner. You've got nowhere to go and not much to do. And while Paul is in this imprisoned situation, he writes anywhere from three to five letters that we know of to churches that he's had a role in leading or founding and to other men that he's mentoring. Now, if you were to think of people you might write to in that situation, or if you've been to enough different churches in your life, then think of the churches you might write to. Think about which people or which church you'd be the most thankful for. And to whom you would write the greatest expressions of thankfulness to? Who would that be? It's not hard to imagine that you might write the longest section of thanksgiving to God to the church that, for example, 
helped you out the most during a significantly challenging period of trials in your life. Or it might be the church that was sending aid and encouragement to you and prayers for you during your present imprisonment. Or, remember, you're a missionary minister, you might write the longest section of thanksgiving to the church or people that have been standing with you from the beginning of your ministry. And not only have they been standing with you from the beginning of your ministry, but they have remained faithful to the gospel themselves all this time. None of these are too difficult to imagine. And in fact, all of these are true of Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. So let's see how we see those aspects here. First of all, see in verses 3 and 4 that Paul gives thanks to God in all his remembrance of them. He's thankful all the time for them. Every time they come to mind, he's filled with joy and he prays joyfully for them. Can you see this is clearly a church that Paul has a close connection with? A connection deep in his heart, as we'll see later in the passage. And what is he most thankful for? When it comes to the Philippian church, Paul is most thankful for, and he prays for them in his every prayer with joy because of verse 5, their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, immediately, of course, what comes to mind is what I explained in our overview sermon last week, that Paul had received from the Philippian church a gift to support him during his imprisonment, brought by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus, who we'll learn more about later in this letter. And indeed, that would be an immediate example of the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel with Paul, and likely what brought them to mind again, since it was a significant factor in the occasion of his writing this letter. In fact, Paul goes on to say that their partnership in the gospel with him has been from the first day until now. The first day, of course, would be from the beginning of their church, as described in Acts 16, as we read last week, with Lydia and her household, and the jailer and his household. But I think, and I agree with many commentators on this, that financial investment in gospel ministry is not the only thing Paul's referring to here. As I mentioned last week, the word here translated as partnership is sometimes translated participation, their participation in the gospel. It also means it's often translated in other places as fellowship, their fellowship in the gospel. Many of you may have heard that Greek word, koinonia, That's this word, fellowship, partnership, participation. And Paul uses this word later in this very same letter in chapter 2, verse 1, to talk about the fellowship with the Spirit that exists in the gospel. And then again in chapter 3, verse 10, he mentions fellowship of or participation in the sufferings of Christ. Neither of those elements are aimed specifically at financial giving. In fact, Paul uses this same word in yet another place, In a letter written to a man while he was also in prison, a man named Philemon, if you turn with me to that short letter, the letter of Philemon sits between, it's after Titus and before Hebrews, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 here. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now in verse 6 here of Philemon, 
Paul prays that Philemon's sharing of the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. We'll see in just a little bit how similar this is to Paul's prayer for the Philippians. But let's talk for a moment about that word that's translated here in Philemon verse 6 as sharing. Sharing is a decent translation of this word, but even though that translation is good and reasonable, in our American churches, especially evangelistically minded churches, the force of the expression sharing of your faith often brings to our mind evangelism. But that's clearly not what Paul is talking about when he dresses Philemon. Sharing of the faith here is this same participation in the faith I've been speaking about, that same word, koinonia. So back to Philippians, while Paul probably does have in mind their financial investment in the gospel, their gift to him, I think he's speaking much more broadly about their full participation in the gospel, their fellowship in gospel-centered life. And this concept of the Philippians' participation in the gospel and Paul's love for them and joy in remembering them and praying for them shapes the context of this passage. Now, just for a moment, let's contrast this with the beginning of another one of Paul's epistles. Turn with me to Galatians. It's just a couple of books back from Philippians. And just in the first 10 verses, we see a dramatic difference. I'm not going to read it here, but a dramatic difference in the way as you scan down there, Paul addresses these two churches. And it indicates a dramatic difference in the relationship that Paul has with these two churches. In Galatians, Paul addresses himself as an apostle who was made an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father, defending his own apostleship. Remember, we said last week that in addressing the Philippians, Paul refrained from defending his own position. But after greeting the Galatian church here, Paul immediately breaks into admonishing them. There's no section of thanksgiving to them whatsoever. Even the Corinthian church, with whom Paul was extremely vexed because of their behavior, their conduct in living out the Christian faith. Paul had a section of thanksgiving for them, but the Galatians, none. And why is he so upset with the Galatians? Because they've so quickly turned away from the gospel to another false gospel. The contrast between the Galatian church and the Philippian church is crystal clear. The love Paul has for the Philippian church and the joy he has when he thinks about them and prays for them is because instead of turning away from the gospel, they've participated closely in the gospel with Paul from the first day until now even in their poverty and hardship. And what we see in verse 6 in this passage is really all part of the same sentence that began back at the beginning of verse 3. Paul gives thanks to God for three things. One, in his every remembrance of them. In his every remembrance of them. Two, because of their close participation in the gospel, as I've said. And then three, for his confidence that he who began this good work in them will bring it to completion until the day or at the day of Christ Jesus. Now here we have to step back a little bit from the Philippians' specific participation in the gospel to something a little more general. Paul has abundant confidence, not that they themselves will always be there for him and with him, but that the Lord, who began the good work in them, who brought the grace of salvation to them, will himself preserve them and bring their salvation to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
Isn't, isn't that a blessing to think about? God himself will be there with you until the very end if you are one of his own. God himself will preserve you and bring that final salvation to its completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. It's that at the day of Christ Jesus that tells us that Paul's talking about the grace of salvation here in verse 6 because that's the only thing Paul can be so confident about in an ultimate sense. If God brought them into the gospel, then God will preserve them. If God brought you into the gospel, God will preserve you. Just as Paul wrote in Romans 8.29, whom God foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Those who have been predestined and called and justified are already glorified in God's sight and will be truly physically glorified at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you were here last Easter time when on Palm Sunday I preached a message on the book of Lamentations. And a few of you were even here five years ago when we actually walked through the whole book. And in that book, we saw the results of the often prophesied day of the Lord. The result of that day of the Lord was judgment and destruction. But in the New Testament, for the people of God, the day of Christ Jesus doesn't focus on judgment but instead on fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people, the completion of their salvation. Now, make no mistake, there will indeed be judgment at the day of Christ Jesus for those who are not in Christ. We'll see in chapter 2, when we get there, everyone will eventually bow the knee to Jesus and confess him as Lord. But not everyone will do so in a saving fashion. Many will do so simply because at that point they'll be under subjugation and there will be no more denying that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. But for the people of God, the day of Christ Jesus is a day of hope and fulfillment of salvation. And that's what Paul refers to in verse 6. God bringing the good work of salvation, he began in them to completion because of his own preserving work in his people. Now in verse 7, we get the beginning of a new sentence, and Paul elaborates why he feels so strongly toward them and about them. And he identifies that it was because they participated in his gospel ministry with him. And that's what's specified by them being partners in grace with him. This here's not just the shared grace of salvation, but the grace of his specific ministry. It's actually consistent with other times Paul uses this word grace to refer to his own apostolic ministry. But it also matches our context because he goes on immediately to talk about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That was the very nature of his apostolic ministry. But before we get to that defense and confirmation of the gospel, the Philippian church participated with him in his ministry in another way as well. First, in his imprisonment. That is, they didn't abandon him when he was put in prison for the sake of the gospel. They weren't fair-weather supporters. They didn't shy away from continuing to support him when things got rough. We've all seen these kinds of people, and frankly, we've all probably been that kind of person at some point, a fair-weather supporter. But the Philippians remained with him and by him in his ministry while he was in prison. 
In fact, they obeyed the principle that we see expressed in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, which Malik read earlier. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. The Philippians remembered Paul while he was imprisoned as if they were in prison with him. Isn't it easy to see why he has so much affection for them? Secondly, they participated in his ministry in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That is, whenever Paul had need to defend his gospel ministry from the attacks of either pagans or Judaizers, that'd be the negative aspect of the gospel or what we might call today defensive apologetics, countering objections to the true gospel message. The Philippian church stuck with him when he was attacked. And when he had opportunity to confirm the gospel in a positive way, they continued to stand by him as well. That's today what sometimes we call offensive apologetics, putting forth the positive proclamation of the gospel and the entire Christian worldview. And Paul says that because they've stood by him in this comprehensive manner in all the most trying moments of his ministry, that's why he knows it's right for him to feel such affection for them all. Well, this is one clear avenue of application in our own lives. Do we stick with others who are proclaiming and defending the gospel, especially when they go through hard times because of it? When they experience direct attack from opponents of the gospel because of their faithfulness? When they experience indirect attack through outrageous circumstances sent their way, again, because of their faithfulness? Maybe you feel as if you can't really do that that much because few, if any, people have ever stuck with you during the attacks and harsh circumstances you've received and been under. But the quickest way to be supported when you need it is to start right within our own congregation. If everyone in the congregation picked out some individual or family to pray for, to help bear their burdens, especially someone that you're not already normally close to, Well, the individuals and the families in the church are likely to feel a whole lot supported very quickly, as long as not everybody is just focusing on one family and and supporting and praying and helping them. To top it off, in verse 8, Paul doubles down on his affection for them. He affirms this with an oath, God is my witness. How deeply he longs to be with them, with the affection of Christ Jesus, he says, It's possible Paul may actually be referring to the way Jesus displayed such affection and compassion during his ministry on earth. And this affection, it's a derivation of that awesome word, splachna. You see, a very literal translation of this word in the King James Version, where it says Paul longs after them in the bowels of Christ Jesus. In our English-speaking culture, we tend to refer to the heart as the organ that is the seat of compassion, the seat of our feelings. But in the ancient world, they often spoke of compassion as it came from lower down in the guts. And don't we feel that way sometimes when we're heavily tied up with emotion, like sitting right here in the pit of your stomach? These are the compassions of Christ he's talking about, the deep affections of Christ Paul is saying he feels for them. And I mentioned Paul affirms this with an oath, for God is my witness. I don't think Paul is breaking Christ's command from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 about not taking any oaths, because the context there has to do with people who would manipulate the words of their oaths in order to leave themselves a way out of their promise. 
almost like in our culture, at least years ago, I don't know if anyone still does this. It used to be common to see people make a promise, but they'd cross their fingers behind their backs and leaving themselves a loophole, so to speak. Those are the kinds of oaths Christ was warning against, false oaths. But for example, when we get up and testify in court with our hand on the Bible and swear that we'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the point shouldn't be that no one can ever trust whatever else we say at any other time in any other place. Rather, it's to lend more gravity to the words we say under oath. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's adding gravity to his oath that he yearns for them out of the deep seat of his affections in Christ. And this leads us to Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11 at the end of this Thanksgiving section. And let me tell you something, too, here before we analyze the prayer. If you ever think to yourself, I really wish I could pray more. I ought to be praying more for so-and-so person, but I don't know how to pray for them or what to pray for them. If you ever feel that way, you can pray one of these prayers of Paul in the Scripture, like this one, or simply begin to use a prayer in Scripture like this as a jumping-off point. You can have tremendous confidence like Paul, that God will answer scriptural prayers that are prayed in faith and prayed in a similar context, especially when you're praying a prayer like this one for someone you're confident has the Holy Spirit living in them. If you're looking to jumpstart your prayer life, start praying this prayer for other believers. Well, let's look at what Paul prays for them. Essentially, he prays that their love will keep growing and growing. The language here is that it will continue to grow, to, excuse me, that it will continue to grow and abound in fullness. But there are several ways Paul describes this love. This isn't just some generic love, it's not merely emotional feelings of love. Remember, we're still governed by the context of the Philippians' participation in the gospel. Paul prays that this love, the love that has compelled them from the first day until now to stand with him in the gospel will continue to grow in knowledge and discernment. Remember how Paul prayed for Philemon, that his participation in the faith would become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ? See how similar that wording is here? And the word here for knowledge, both here in Philippians and in Philemon, isn't just an intellectual knowledge. Rather, it's an intimate relational knowledge, a knowledge that knows what to do because the church knows its God and knows its people. You might call it an ethical knowledge. And Paul adds to this prayer for this relational, ethical knowledge, a prayer for discernment. And this discernment isn't so much in the intellectual sense of discerning false teachers from true teachers. He addresses that later. Here, Paul's talking again about a practical, ethical discernment, a discernment that knows just what to do in every situation. Wouldn't you all like that? Armed with an intimate knowledge of God and of his people, and with a practical discernment that sees what to do in each situation, this church will greatly grow in their worship of God and in their care and discipleship of themselves as a flock. Remember, he's also writing to the elders and the deacons. And even in their continued stand with him, in gospel ministry. We see Paul tell us in verse 10 why he's praying this for them, so that they may know what to do 
And so that they will be a certain kind of people. They'll know what things to approve. Superior things, maybe your translation says, excellent things. Things that enhance the spread of the good news. And, and what kind of people to be. A pure people. A blameless people. Those who will rejoice in the day of Christ Jesus because he will say to them, Well done, good and faithful servants. These are the people that, as Paul concludes his prayer in verse 11, are filled with the fruit of righteousness. Well, what is this fruit of righteousness? Some would say here that, it's, that the fruit is righteousness. Certainly, righteousness itself only comes from Christ Jesus. Others say it's the fruit that comes from righteousness, such as the fruit of the Spirit. One way or the other, this fruit only comes through Christ. And so Paul's prayer for them is to be so filled is it's a court, it's a worthy prayer. This last phrase, however, is a bit interesting to the glory and praise of God. At first glance, it might seem obvious that Paul is just speaking as he often does as a, a doxology, that he's saying they're being filled with such fruit and being pure and blameless in the day of Christ will bring glory and praise to God. And it will, of course. But there is some evidence in the language here, and even in a very early manuscript of this letter, that Paul may actually be saying their approval of excellent things, their pure and blameless state in the day of Christ, they're being filled with the fruit of righteousness. These things will bring praise and glory to them from God, and even to Paul himself. And I can see value in that interpretation. First, the focus of Paul's prayer is on their spiritual development. Public affirmation from God makes sense as the response to people who meet the day of Christ, pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. The second, we mentioned last week that the residents of Philippi, as a Roman colony that had been established by the Emperor Augustus himself, were particularly preoccupied with public honor and recognition. Paul's telling the Philippian church what kind of public honor and recognition they should be preeminently concerned about, the glory and praise that comes from God. This in itself could be one of the excellent things that Paul prays they grow in their ability to approve, praise that comes from God rather than praise that comes from men. And the last reason I think he's talking about praise that comes from God is that Peter uses this same language in 1 Peter 1, verse 7, to definitely indicate praise received by the people of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It seems related to what the Apostle John also says in 1 John 2.28, that we must abide in Christ so that we need not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. We want praise from God, not praise from men. And we want to be confident at his coming, not ashamed. To close here, I'd like to bring our focus back to the element of Paul's prayer in which he prays for their ethical knowledge and discernment to grow so that they may be able to approve what is excellent. Well, what are some ways we can receive Paul's prayer for ourselves and apply it in our lives, even as maybe we're also praying this for the lives of our fellow believers? What does it mean to approve what's excellent? 
First, this is a knowledge that comes not only from intellect, but from close relationship, as I said, with and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And that only comes, first of all, to those who are born again, who have God's Spirit living in them. But secondly, this kind of knowledge, relationship, and fellowship comes to those who are practicing obedience to Christ. You don't get more sensitive to the Holy Spirit the more you disobey him. In fact, you get more hardened to the instruction of the Spirit in your life the more you disobey. Obedience is a primary factor in increasing levels of relationship and fellowship with the Spirit, leading to increased discernment and wise choices. Psalm 111 verse 10 teaches us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. We need to practice the fear of the Lord, which then leads to more understanding, more wisdom. It's a positive feedback loop. More obedience leads to more wisdom and understanding, which leads to greater awareness of how to obey, and so on. Yes, we can pray this prayer for others, and we can ask others to pray it for us, and God knows we should. But we are never going to acquire this kind of intimate discernment of knowing what's right, knowing what's excellent in every situation, unless we make a practice of obeying what we already know is right. Don't expect God to give you incredible discernment in knowing what's right in every situation that Scripture doesn't plainly talk about. When you're walking around in clear disobedience to God on matters Scripture does plainly address. Are you having relationship troubles? Examine yourself to see if you're harboring unforgiveness and bitterness toward others. Because if you are, you're likely going to continue having relationship troubles. Are you having financial troubles? If so, take a long, hard look at your spending habits and discern whether you aren't already frittering away the resources God has given you to steward. Don't expect more from Him when you're already blowing what you have. And that doesn't just go for money as well. Think about time. Yes, we all absolutely need downtime now and then, but do you spend nearly all your time frittering away in idleness the hours that God has given you that you can never get back? These are just a few examples of not expecting God to give you more discernment when you're already ignoring his plain commands in Scripture. Don't expect God to increase your spirituality if you consider worshiping with the gathered believers just a a buffet option. We could go on and on with examples. But beyond that, it's worth mentioning a thing or two about approving what is excellent. I've I've had this conversation with a, a few of you recently about how some of my seminary professors encouraged and exhorted their students that for some of them, it might be a sin not to get an A in a class because they were young, single, capable, and had no other responsibilities. The only issue was whether they were going to put in the work. For others... It might actually be sinful to get an A in the class because in order to devote the time to put in the necessary work, they'd have to take too much time away from their other responsibilities, whether it be their spouse or their children or a job or even their commitment in the church. Yes, we should be excellent in the things we do for the Lord. But as renowned theologian Don Carson says, in all our pursuit of excellence... We must never worship excellence. That would simply be idolatrous. 
So for many of us, approving what's excellent may simply be learning through the experience of obedience what's the best thing to devote our attention to at any given time and what's the best things to let slide. What that will look like for any one of us as individuals is going to vary. And within each individual life, it's going to vary widely from time to time depending on your stage in life. We can all stand to receive more and more of this kind of knowledge and discernment. It will come from the Spirit, perhaps as others are praying this for us, and as we pray it for ourselves and for others, but also as we obey the things we know we ought to. Let's pray. Father, I I can't add to this anymore. May our love abound more and more with relational, ethical knowledge and discernment of knowing what to do in every situation, approving what is excellent, so that we may be pure and blameless on that day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God, that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, And that we would, by practice over and over, let go of the idea of needing the praise of other people. Father, we know this can only come from you. We know that you grant this. And we're confident, like Paul was, that as we pray this prayer, you will work by your Spirit. You'll work in our lives. Lord, for those who are practicing obedience in every way they know how, Lord, give them far more grace, more awareness, more discernment. Lord, for those who need conviction about ways they're disobeying plans of commands of Scripture, Lord, give us the conviction and the boldness to repent and change. Continue to soften our hearts toward your voice in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this love for each other, there was no better model than the love that Christ had for us. The model that he laid down his life. He suffered a death he should never have suffered. It wasn't his to suffer. It was ours. We're the ones that deserved it. And he righteously always knew what the best thing to do was. We know one of those commands is simply to celebrate this together, so we'll do that now.